Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 94 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Land. And I am Kayla Moria. And we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. Kayla, how are you? I'm great. Good. Busy times at work because I work with cars and it's oh. our very first fresh snow. Ugh. Which means everybody's scrambling to get their car in because it's the very first fresh snow. And they're like, I got to get this shit winterized. <laughs> yeah, I know. We have the uh, the tires in our basement for my car and they're not on there yet. <laughs> but they will be soon. They will be soon. Yep. I went to the Twin Cities this last weekend. Fabulous. I got to see my Lisa. Awesome. I got to see my Travis. Awesome. I got to see my Alex. Don't know who that is, but awesome. She's awesome. She's uh, uh, friends with me and Gina. Like, Wait, did she used to live in New Orleans? No, different Alex. Different Alex. Okay. okay. No, Alex is, okay, you'll love this. Guess what her job is? She does the art for tombstones. Why am I not best friends with her? <laughs> so she, uh, I got to have a little like brunchy brunch date with her and that was a lot of fun. We don't get to see each other super often because she works and she, you know, has a, a kiddo and mm-hmm. sometimes that happens mm-hmm. and, you know. Yeah. Kiddos take up a lot of time. Yep. But it was super rad. We got brunch at Stanley's. I got a vegan Reuben. Mm. How was it? I love that vegan Reuben there. If you live in Minneapolis and you haven't been to Stanley's. I've never been to Stanley's, but if they have a vegan Reuben. Yeah, so it's like corned beets. (gasps) It's shredded beets. And then they have a vegan Thousand Island. What? And if you're gluten-free, you can order it on gluten-free bread. Okay, so I've never had a Reuben because I Because meat. Yeah, and I was little, and little kids generally don't eat Reubens. Like, that's not a thing thing Mm -hmm. they eat chicken nuggets and hamburgers um but yeah oh my gosh i've always wondered what it tastes like and then if you're there you can also get a uh, this is not vegan it's just vegetarian but they also have mini donuts (gasps) that you can that come with like a chocolate ganache and a raspberry jammy thing it's can't talk like heaven i can't talk nice enough about stanley's restaurant oh my gosh okay steve please make note stanley's um, how have you been? Well, Kayla, I'm a little bummed. Bummed about what? So, you know how I was sick for a lot of days last week? Yeah. Um, I have come to the conclusion, and I'm 90% sure that a lot of my sickness is due to the fact that I am 90% sure I have a stomach ulcer. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> Goodbye, all seasonings in your life. All seasonings, any alcohol, uh, most food. Most food is out the window. Um, anything acidic, anything bubbly. Those any- are all my favorite things. But you got to go to the doctor. Oh, I, yes, I have an appointment on Thursday. Okay, I was like, you can't just be like, I got an ulcer. No, I... I got my ulcer. <laughs> <laughs> no, the moment that I uh, I talked to a friend of mine who also had has gets stomach ulcers and I was like hey what does an ulcer feel like and they're like oh it's like this this and this and I was like check awesome now what and so the this Thursday is the earliest I could get in which I'm also getting my flu and my vaccine at the same time so gonna be boosted and and vaxxed and all the things and hopefully we'll figure out what's wrong with my stomach here's hoping you don't have an ulcer yeah 
Yeah. Like this is this is my crossed handed crossed fingersy thingy. Yeah. I hope you don't have an ulcer. Yeah. Because it's stupid. You're you're already like limited to what you can eat anyway. I know. My my diet has been so sad over the last <laughs> week. There's something that I found a website. So I've just been only eating things that are recommended for people with ulcers. And one website was like, oh, uh, don't worry. Even though you can't eat pizza, just kidding. Yes, you can. All you need to do is take a wheat pita bread, put some hummus on it, put some veggies on top of it, but be careful what veggies. You can have bell peppers and spinach, and then you can put some feta on it, and then you can have pizza. Bitch, that's not a pizza. Yeah, Steve and I just refer to it as sad pizza. <laughs> like, it tastes good, but it's not fucking pizza. Absolutely not. So it's just called sad pizza now. Delicious, but sad. I'm glad we talked about this real quick. I, rem- I-, I remember that I was supposed to tell you Something. Okay. Alex, who you have not met, but is an amazing person, uh-huh. said, you should tell Brittany that I've been listening to the local show for the last two hours <gasps> and just listening with my eyes closed and sobbing. They are doing a beautiful tribute to Mimi. Yeah, that was another thing that happened this week. It's been a it's been a wacky week last week. Um, Whirlwind of emotions. Yeah. Uh, Mimi Parker from Lowe who is, it's so odd because they are a band that just kind of exists here, just like any other band that exists here. Everybody knows about them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we just know them. They live here. They, well, Alan would come out to shows a lot. Um, But they are an internationally famous band. And uh, Mimi Parker passed away last weekend from ovarian cancer. And so her funeral was on Thursday my first time at a Latter-day Saints church. Oh, okay. It was very interesting. It was an absolutely beautiful service. Uh, oddly funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was sitting next to Jay Gabler, and we after it was over, and we were, like, picking up the chairs so that we could have, like, the after hours. Like the celebration Yeah, the life. celebration part. I mean, the entire thing was a celebration of life. Like, what an amazing human and she had so many things that were so very dedicatedly her mm-hmm. like she had very specific things and it made me wonder what people would say at my funeral and I was like fuck nothing as cool as Mimi's <laughs> like even outside of her career as like a world famous musician she just was so very specific in how yeah. she did things and I'm like I'm just all over the place and I'm like ah spooky shit ah music <laughs> like there's there's yeah it, yeah. If you die before me, I'll make sure people laugh at your funeral. It'll just be a roast to Brittany. Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> That's what I want. I want people to laugh. Preferably not at my death, but like about my life. And what if you die in a really funny way? Like, what if a piano falls on top of you? Um, yeah. Then then you need to say. Can something I make a like Bugs Bunny joke? Classic Brittany. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes, whirlwind of emotions, and we were talking about the week, and then I just. And then Alex and everything. I just wanted to make sure you knew. No, that's so nice. That's so nice. We, uh, Diane put in a lot of hours on that. And yeah, I got to contribute my breaks as well. It was the first time I've ever done a, a break that was a recap of a funeral. And that was odd. And sad. And sad. But Ooh. yeah, it was, last week was a lot. Um, but, but it's a new week. It's a new week. 
<laughs> I'm going to try not to bum everyone out any more than I already have. What, five minutes of just like... That's not bumming. Annoying. <laughs> That's not bumming at all. Okay. Are you ready for my story this week? I am very ready for your story because I have a feeling that I might know what it is. I think you will. But we're going to start off anyway with a question that I know you know the answer to. Okay. Brittany. Yeah. Would you say you are into music? <laughs> Already full circle. <laughs> like, like, what's your music taste like? Uh, eclectic. I'm all over the place. But but probably not so much country, just based on us knowing each other. No, no. I like very little country. Like, you're, you're not into the honky-tonk. Unless it's the boot scootin' boogie. 90s music, I like, so... <laughs> Uh, but I'm guessing have you I'm guessing you've probably not musically heard of Bobby Mackey. Musically, no. But, but but don't worry. I hadn't either. I had like and I had like a solid country phase. Like to the point where I don't even know that you would call it a phase. I just grew up on country and then hit high school and was like, I'm gonna develop my own music taste. And then that's when the country kind of went away. Yeah, high school. Okay. I think uh, once the Spice Girls came out, I was like, I'm gone with country. Oh, no. And I, I spice had, up my life. I had my like standard uh, younger person like pop phase, but it was always country primarily country and oh. 80s rock was like my big thing. Oh, fuck yeah. 80s rock. Yeah. But despite that, I had never heard of him. Um, mm-hmm. Before I start for this, big shout out to uh, bittersoutherner.com where I got a lot of my information for this week. Awesome. As always, the link will be in our episode sources on leftofskeptic.com. Robert Randall Mackey, who was born uh, in 1948, is a traditional country music singer whose career spanned decades. He is better known to Kentuckians as Bobby Mackey. But just because he's not nationally renowned like some of his inspirations, such as Hank Williams, Mm. Merle Haggard, and George Jones, Mm -hmm. doesn't mean he isn't a big deal. He's a local music legend, having been inducted into the Northern Kentucky Music Legends Hall of Fame in 2012. Damn. And signs for the city of Wilder, Kentucky, proudly read, home of Bobby Mackey's Music World. See, Bobby Mackey's Music World, I've heard of. And even if his music hasn't gained big-time acclaim, his music venue, Bobby Mackey's Music World, definitely has. Yes, it has. Located at 44 Licking Pike Road... (laughs) (laughs) Kayla (laughs) in Wilder, Kentucky Bobby Mackey bought the building in 1978 converting it into one of the only country dance clubs in the area Bobby Mackey's Music World on Friday and Saturday nights people come and dance and listen to bands like Mackey's just some good old classic style country like Bobby Mackey in interviews has straight up said he doesn't hate new country, but stuff he likes is that old style. Like, very... Hank Williams. Hank Williams, Willie Nelson, classic. Yeah. Yeah. Quote, I was really in heavy thoughts about moving to Nashville, but of course I was married, had a baby girl, and considered the fact that the clubs where I had played for eight years, I always had a crowd. I was looking at the security side and decided that getting my own place would allow me to go to Nashville anyway because I'd own the place. I could get someone to sing for me or something. Mm -hmm. Which is freaking genius, by the way. Yeah. 
And like, you'd be making money even when you're not there. Yep, like can't find a place to play the kind of music you want to hear? Fucking open your own venue. Play that music and only that music. Make it your own space. Awesome. I love that. According to Louisville, Kentucky Spectrum News 1, there are several local stories as to why Bobby, Mackie, Bobby Mackey's Music World, try saying that a bunch of times fast. Bobby Mackey, Bobby Mackey. <laughs> no, I can't, there, there do it. You I can't do it apparently. Why it is haunted. Do tell me. So, in case you haven't picked up on this, this is a haunted location. This is the place we're talking about. The history begins in the 1860s when the original building was a slaughterhouse and a meatpacking facility. Yuck. Some researchers have speculated that after the slaughterhouse closed in 1890s, the satanic cult activity took place in the building around a well that was in the bottom. So they had a well where they would dispose of blood and viscera. That seems so incredibly unsafe. It was the 1800s. Didn't even care. Didn't know better. So basically, the satanic cult would use this well to dispose of potentially human remains. <gasps> so they were saying that Animals and humans were being slaughtered for ritualistic purposes during secret meetings. And because of this, the well is known today and marketed as the portal to hell. Yes, I remember this from the Ghost Adventures episode where Zach Baggins is like, Shh, we'll get there. Get there. Stop it. Portal to hell. <laughs> but that's just like, that's just pretty thin speculation, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we've dismissed stories in the past for less. I mean, most, most stories that they're like, a satanic cult came in here and did sacrifices, I d generally don't believe that, that that's what happened. So that in itself isn't enough to make it haunted. For that, we have to jump forward quite a bit. Okay. To the murder of Pearl Bryan in 1896. Okay. Now, this is a real murder. It is documented. It is well documented. Well documented, like like court <laughs> cost. Oh, I see what you did there. So, as a quick warning, there are a few descriptions here that might pe make people uncomfortable. I won't get super into it, but if you don't want to hear this next part, maybe just skip ahead a few minutes. If murder descriptions make you uncomfortable, fair. Pearl Bryan was a 22 year old pregnant American woman from Greencastle, Indiana, who was found decapitated in Kentucky. Mm. In 1896, her head was severed below the fifth vertebrae. Due to the murder's gruesome nature, it gained a lot of press coverage at the time. Uh, Scott yeah. Jackson was soon arrested for the murder, and during the trial, it was revealed that Jackson had a secret romance with Brian for several months prior to her murder. I'm guessing this didn't come up for sure in the trial because, because the sources I found kept saying theorized, not verified or uh. testified. Mm. But the running theory is that he killed her because she wouldn't terminate the pregnancy. What a dick. On January 31st, 1896, Jackson and Alonzo Whaling, who was another man that was implicated, it was Jackson's friend, uh -huh. slipped cocaine into Brian's drink while they were out at a saloon nearby in Cincinnati and then proceeded to murder her later that night. An analysis of Bryant's stomach's contents later showed that there was indeed cocaine present in the organ at the time of her death. Pearl's head was severed with tiny, sharp instruments. Autopsy later revealed that Pearl 
was likely still alive during the procedure. No. And because Jackson was a dentistry student at the time, they think that he used dentist tools. Those are so tiny. Another theory that they have is that because she wouldn't go and get an abortion. Yeah. That um, they were trying to basically give her cocaine to force her into an abortion, realized that was not going to work. So then they were going to use the tools to do it themselves and then got fucking mad with stupidity. Oh, my God. Ugh. So this is like a murder that they did. The reason this all connects is because in response to the location of Brian's head, Jackson and Whaling gave several answers, such as the bottom of the Ohio River, in a sandbar in Dayton, Kentucky, and um, the nearby Covington Waterworks and parts of the Miami and Erie Canal were also drained in search of the head. Like, they like had several locations they tried. Jesus. However, investigations of these places turned up nothing. To this day, her head has never been found, and some oh people God. believe that... They disposed of her head on the property where Bobby Mackey's now sits because at the time it was an abandoned slaughterhouse. So the idea being that, you know, nobody would investigate if there were weird smells and nobody's going to go onto an abandoned slaughterhouse property. So that's where this whole theory came from. That's so sad. Her body was found only a few miles away from the location, and from what I can tell, the idea was being that if they disposed of it separate from the body, maybe nobody would be able to identify her. Evil. 1800s. Evil. Like, forensics were different back then. So Yeah. Anyway, so that's the well-known murder aspect that could cause some haunting in the area. Yeah. Do-do-do-do-do. If you skipped ahead, welcome back. And if a murder doesn't inspire haunting activity, you know what else does? Mob activity. Mob activity. You know, it's been a while since I've had a location with some good gangsters. After being shut down for a while, in the early 1900s, the building was cleaned up and reopened as a distillery during Prohibition. Awesome. The distillery ran gambling and prostitution in addition to illegal alcohol. And by the time E.A. Buck Brady purchased the property in the 1940s, it had become pretty notorious. Okay. Brady, a former bootlegger, didn't mind the rep. It sounds like he kind of embraced it. He sank his profits from Prohibition into remodeling the building and reopened it as a bar and underground casino called the Primrose Club. Okay. And the Primrose was pretty popular. Brady had no problem making a profit. One might say too much profit because according to testimony Brady later gave to the United States District Court he was hoping the rural location of the building would be enough to keep him out of the way of the Cleveland Four um which was a crime syndicate with powerful interests in Cincinnati like a like a mob bosses scenario okay so he Opened up his own thing. Yep. Which is what the mob was doing. And he was hoping it was far enough away where they wouldn't like. Exactly. That he's doing their thing. So like if Brady had sucked at his job, it might have been fine. It might have been like far enough away and nobody worried about it. But he didn't suck at his job. He was really good at his job. And soon the Primrose began to cut into the profits of mob owned operations in Newport. They don't like that. And in 1946, the Cleveland Four dispatched a man named Red Masterson to persuade Brady to move. Now, if I know anything from movies and TV shows, 
their persuasions are usually painful. Brady was disinclined to move. He's like, nah, I'm good where I am. Thank you. How'd that go? And so he got the drop on Masterson with a shotgun and blasted him in the leg. It's not the worst worst place to be shot. The ensuing, like, madness saw Brady arrested for disturbance of the peace. Charges he escaped only after Masterson refused to name him in a trial as the attacker. Because, you know, snitches get stitches. Right. And as soon as Brady walked free, the Cleveland floor four made it clear that if he kept on going how he was in Wilder, shit would get fucked. Yep. That sounds so, right. Brady opted to move to Florida, where he remained until his death in 1965, and he left the Primrose Club to the mob. The mob reopened the building in 1947 as the Latin Quarter. It had been remodeled and expanded. It had dancers and food in addition to the continued operation of the gambling. Okay. They had an attic room that sat behind a hidden door, and below the basement had been repurposed as dressing rooms for the dancers and a little stone cell for people who racked up too much debt. Uh, okay. As mobs are like to do. Yep. But it wasn't really sunshine and roses for them. Okay. The Latin Quarter was routinely raided throughout the 1950s by local police who took sledgehammers to the walls in order to confiscate the slots. In 1961, the Latin Quarter closed. The building changed hands quite a few times after that, like random businesses, usually bars, restaurants. There was a uh, bingo hall at one point. The last of them was a biker bar known officially as the Hard Rock Cafe, not associated or the Hard Rock Cafe. Okay. Just they were called the Hard Rock Cafe, but it was not like the Hard Rock Cafe that we see everywhere in every major city ever. Okay. And Locally, the Hard Rock Cafe was better known as the Bloody Bucket. Oh, shit. The Bloody Bucket closed in 1977 after a series of shootings, and this was just a year before Bobby Mackey was like, yeah, this is my building. Yeah. Again, someone who just wants to, I don't understand people who are like, you know, this place with all this violence, this is where I want to live. This is where I want to hang out. Bobby became aware of these strange occurrences in the building not too long after making his purchase through the addition of a new employee. A medium? No. Okay. Carl Lawson, who was at the time a young 20-year-old, like, loner-type guy. Like, he's, he, he, he was in the community, but he didn't have a bunch of friends. Okay. He showed up during the remodel and asked Mackie for a job, and he was hired to clean and paint. As I said, bit of a loner, and some people described him as strange, but he proved out to be like a good worker and apparently knew a lot about the building. Awesome. So by the time Bobby Mackey's Music World opened for business that September, he had landed himself a job as the live-in caretaker, moving out of his parents' house and into the attic room, that like one behind a hidden door. That is a huge upgrade for a 20-something-year-old dude. One conversation with Carl kind of freaked Bobby out, though. Okay. The two men were hanging out in the recently opened club, just, you know, shooting the shit, when Carl shook his head and told Bobby, you wouldn't believe some of the things that go on here. (laughs) And Bobby was like, what do you mean? And Carl just told him, some weird stuff happens in the building, but just stayed vague. 
finally, after, you know, like poking him yeah, a little Carl, bit. Yeah, you got to give me a little bit more information here. Bobby was able to get the info from him and then immediately was like, nope. <laughs> um, Carl told him stories of being watched, of noises and footsteps from the dance floor long after the bar had closed, of feeling presences prowling through the basement. And Bobby, not big into the supernatural, but he, he was like, okay, I'm going to stop you right here. Quote, I said, Carl, I don't want to hear that. I don't want nobody to know nothing about that. Here I am putting everything I've got into here. I don't want it to be scaring people off before we get started. Unquote. Fair. Yeah. Carl agreed to keep it to himself. He continued to live in the upstairs apartment. And Bobby said he slept with a brace against the door and a shotgun by his bed. Jesus. Within the first few years, meanwhile, the club was hopping. They stayed open five, sometimes six nights a week. Janet Mackey, Bobby's wife, kept track of the books and the bar. And Bobby performed on the stage when he wasn't, you know, heading to Nashville to record. And Carl kept everything clean and maintained. Along with, you know, the regular bar staff and everything like that. Right. Sounds like a smooth little operation. Occasionally, Carl attempted to update Bobby about the club's supernatural uh, activity. And Bobby was like, no. Nope. But Janet was like, yes, yes, tell me things. She listened and believed, and in interviews prior to her passing in 2009, she recalled an overwhelming sensation of malice and that seemed to bleed out of the walls. Worse, she claimed to have been attacked while alone in the building, with a ghostly force grabbing her by the waist, pushing her down a flight of stairs. Oh, my God. Soon, Bobby said she flat out refused to enter the building by herself. Like, she could only be there when other people were there. That's legit. If you're going to get thrown down the stairs, you want someone to help you up. Other members of the staff claim to have encounters of their own, glimpses, sounds, sensations. You're like standard ghosty activity. Mm -hmm. At this point, the bar being haunted wasn't a big thing. Mostly, it was just discussed by the bar staff with, you know, Carl or some regulars, that kind of stuff. Your standard small town haunted bar scenario. Standard. But the lid was about to be blown on the place when Bobby's friend and horror writer, Doug Hensley, got wind of this whole scenario. Oh my God, that's like a horror writer's dream. Bobby had told him a little bit and he ran with it, cornering Carl the next time he saw him. Apparently that night he was working the bull because this place has a bull. I can't oh, like bull. a Yep. Awesome. Awesome. So cornered him and wanted to get as many details as possible. And Carl had stories. Because at this point, he'd been working there about 10 years. And living there for 10 years. And living there, yep. The first edition of Doug's book came out in roughly 1989. A small little book called The Terror of Bobby Mackey's Music World. At the time, Bobby greeted the release without much worry because he didn't think it would go anywhere. (laughs) And he was wrong. (laughs) In the mid-90s, which, as we all know, like, late 80s, early 90s, big for, like, haunted stuff. Yeah. Big. That's when Stephen King really got popular. Shortly after Doug Hensley published another book called The Exorcism of Carl Lawson, things really started to ramp up. According to Seifert, who is the publicity manager at Bobby Mackey's Music World, it was around this time that the ghost tours began. Oh. So people had read the book and they would just show up and be like, hey, can we look at the basement? 
So it'd be like, you know, two or three people just showing up being like, hey, I want to I see what's down there. And so they'd grab like a bar staff and say, go ahead, show them down there quick, blah, 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 blah. Didn't make anything about it. But at that point, it had started to get like it started to get more and more regular to the point where they started having people volunteer to lead official tours in 2005. But it really seemed to ramp up when the show that shall not be named got involved. I already named it. Guys, I already named it. For those listeners who are new or newish, I haven't referenced this in a long time <laughs> because I fucking hate it. But I hate Ghost Adventures and Zach Baggins is trash. Trash. So for a while I was calling it the show that shall not be named, but then I, I was going to do it this time and then I quickly realized that it's been a while since we said that show, so I should probably tell people. It's been hundreds of episodes. Baggins is a douche nozzle. Anyway. For this section, I am going to quote Bitter Southerner completely because I don't think I can say it any better than this. Okay. I'm excited. In 2008, the premiere episode of the Travel Channel's reality show Ghost Adventures featured an investigation at Bobby Mackey's Music World. The Ghost Adventures crew, including show host Zach Baggins, are an aggressively masculine take on the profession of Ghost Hunter. (laughs) A female friend of mine once referred to them with perfect understanding disdain as the ghost bros. Yeah, ghost bros. Their style is combative. They provoke ghosts by shouting at them, insulting them, daring them to come out and show themselves. The Bobby Mackey episode is a mishmash of interviews with Lawson and Hensley, intercut with scenes of the three main hunters fumbling around in the dark basement using night vision cameras, swearing at specters. Eventually, Zach Baggins received several long scratches, allegedly from a phantom hand, and then the crew went home happy. The episode was successful enough to spawn two sequels, including the web series Return to Bobby Mackey's and another episode in 2010. All three proved wildly popular. Visits to Bobby Mackey's by Paranormal Enthusiasts, which flagged a bit, rocketed back up, and yes, yet, they have not come back down. It's a portal to hell aggressively masculine take. Yep. It's perfect. Ghost bros. Fuck Zach Baggins. For an investigation I do not hate, we can reference BuzzFeed Unsolved. Oh, The Ghosts and Demons of Bobby Mackey's, which premiered in April of 2017. Shane and Ryan beat Baggins every time. Every time. Well, they're just so gosh darn lovable. This is the episode well-known for the best quote Hey there, demons. It's me, ya boy. <laughs> That's from that episode? Yep. And the lesser known but still great from, oh, you know, still from Shane. I'm uh, standing near your hole, and it's very dark, and frankly, I don't believe in you, so I feel like I'm writing a letter to Santa Claus right now. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't have anything to report from that one. I just needed to include it because of the, you know, hey there, demons. It's me, ya, ya boy. boy. <laughs> Their investigation didn't reveal anything. Okay. These days, ghost investigations at Bobby Mackey's Music World are handled by Gatekeeper Paranormal specifically, which is uh, the club's resident supernatural investigators. Mm. The Gatekeeper's Paranormal team is comprised of four women from around Cincinnati and northern Kentucky, Laura Rowland, Angela Johnson, Mandy Loftus, and Kim Short. Since 2014, they've been leading two-hour ghost tours on weekdays along with occasional five-hour investigations. Oh, jealous. 
One of the places available during the tour and investigations is the old Latin Quarter dressing rooms, which that's what they kind of did in part of the basement. In the basement, yeah. They are small, mirrored spaces without doors. And this area is said to be popular as one of the most seen and most notorious spirits in the bar, Johanna. Johanna? Mm Mm-hmm. In the 1950s, a young woman named Johanna fell in love with the wrong man. Ugh, don't they always. Though Johanna lived at home, she was a dancer in the club and he was a dealer at the casino. Johanna's father, a jealous and spiteful mobster, got wind of the affair and had the man killed. In her sorrow, Johanna poisoned herself in the dressing room. And she's still there. Ugh. Women do not make out well in this place. Carl Lawson, who claimed to have found her journal, was the first to report her. Apparently, he saw Johanna constantly. According to Hell's Gate, Lawson went as far as to hold long, one-sided conversations with her spirit. Her appearances were always accompanied by a distinctive odor of a rose perfume. Soon after, employees and visitors began claiming encounters with her as well. Tugs on clothing faint touches, and sometimes a sad, lovely face glimpsed from the corner of their eye staring out of a mirror. Though Bobby Mackey was unenthusiastic about the ghost in principle, something about the legend captivated him, and he actually recorded a single called Johanna in 2010, which went on to become one of his most famous songs. Interesting. The lyrics, Now some may not believe it, and I won't say it's true, but some of us have smelled your rose perfume. Aww. I didn't realize that he was still active. I mean, he's, is from is everything he still I can see, alive? Like, he's still performing. Yeah, it's like if you go on the Bobby Mackey's website, it's like he's got shows booked. He's playing at his bar still. That blew my mind. I, I don't know why. I just kind of didn't think that he was still alive. Some other items that are brought up on the tours as to reasons the bar might be haunted include the belief that spirits can't cross flowing water. So the rare northern current of the Licking River may be keeping dark forces trapped in the building. Mm. That is a theory shared by Baggins. Spirits can't cross flowing water. Before her death in uh, 2009, Janet, Bobby's wife, claims to have been overcome by that scent of roses when she had that attack that I described earlier. Like, Johanna pushed her down the stairs? Well, no. So she said she had the scent of roses, but she, like, well, she was grabbed around the waist, picked up, thrown around. But she said instead of seeing Johanna, she saw a man that later, she said, resembled sketches of Alonzo wailing, screaming, get out, get out. Which Alonzo was the one who was the friend of the guy who killed the woman who was beheaded. The woman hater. Yeah. Historic photos of Pearl Bryan match witnesses' descriptions of a headless ghost dressed in turn-of-the-century clothing, and photos of Buck Brady also match descriptions of often-seen ghosts. A club manager claims that on several occasions, she would go through the club and make sure everything was turned off and closed down, you know, your standard closing activities. Yeah. But hours later, she'd find that the bar lights were back on, the front doors were unlocked, and that the jukebox would be playing a song called The Anniversary Waltz, even though the jukebox was unplugged. You know, some ghosts just want to keep partying. You can't, you can't just turn off the lights on them. They'll turn them right back on. Hot spots in the club include the spotlight room and the catwalk over the stage, the well in the basement, the old china room, and the platform area near the kitchen. People have also claimed to see ghosts in the big pitted mirror in the main room. 
Angie Johnson of Gatekeeper Paranormal told Spectrum One News, 99% of the time, there is usually a scientific explanation for what we are experiencing. There's just that 1% you can't explain. Which, I mean, that's pretty standard for a paranormal investigation, I feel like, like a team that says that. It's the same kind of idea that we hear from Duluth Paranormal Society when we talk to them about stuff. Right. Not everything is a haunting, but that doesn't prove that hauntings don't exist. Exactly. She went on to some of the specific reporting sightings and hearings. She said, we have heard what sounds like a female voice humming or singing in that general area. She said, pointing to the stage at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And she said, there have been many times when we have heard what sounds like heavy footsteps back behind the stage. We often hear heavy footsteps on the dance floor and we'll hear chairs scooting. A lot of people claim they'll feel what... Oh, wait, you're going to love this. You ready? Okay. A lot of people claim that they'll feel what feels like a cat rubbing up against (gasps) their leg. And I've actually felt that several times myself. I love ghost kitties. One of the more frightening sightings was experienced by Johnson's fellow gatekeeper tour guide, Laura, uh, in what they called the creepy corner. Okay. (laughs) Uh, They said there's a young man that leans up against the pool table, and apparently Laura could describe him in perfect detail. And he's there one second, and the next second he's gone. Mm, Is he handsome? I don't know because it was just a news article. Is so there they a didn't... handsome man in the creepy corner? You know how sometimes news articles, like they might have gone into a lot more detail, but then the article cuts it out just to make it fit better? Yeah, that's so annoying. They didn't include that stuff. So I don't know. I'm going to pretend like he's handsome. Uh, the article on Bitter Southerner titled, the article, which by the way, if you want to go find it, it's titled Honky Tonk Hates. <laughs> okay. Tells of some experiences of people who had like, dealt with stuff in or around Bobby Mackey's. All of these stories include the names of the people who experienced them, which in my opinion lends more credibility than just random ass anonymous stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the mid 1990s, a car shot down Licking Road, lost control and smashed into a telephone pole just outside the club's front door. The occupants were killed, unfortunately, and Larry Hornsby was the first policeman on the scene. As he stood there looking over the wreckage, he said a woman dressed in an evening gown came out of the club and offered him a pair of tablecloths to lay over the dead. The next week, Hornsby came by to thank her, and the club, he learned, had been locked and no such woman existed at the time of the accident. What? And in an evening dress. What a fancy ghost. Uh, J.R. Costigan, who was a bar regular... Apparently, he was fond of, like, that country western music. (laughs) Uh, And they said said he was fond of western-style clothing and ice water in equal measure. I think they were trying to hint that he was not a drunk. Oh, okay. He reported an attack in the men's room bathroom at Bobby Mackey's. While washing his hands, he looked into the mirror, and there it was. A man-shaped hole in the air, complete with a cowboy hat. Oh, well, Okay. And then it came at him, punching, kicking, clawing, and beating him until he fainted. Good Lord. Upon recovering, he ran straight to Bobby and told him that he had to get control of his club's evil spirits. Bobby laughed, assuming it was a joke, but Costigan wasn't laughing. He sued Bobby for negligence in allowing the ghost to operate without any warnings to patrons. The judge threw the case out, recommending that Costigan take the matter up with a higher power. But that was a legit... Lawsuit. Lawsuit. (laughs) Oh, Wow. 
Following the advice of his lawyer, Bobby put up a warning sign on the front entrance. The ghosts, by all accounts, remain in the bathroom as far as they can tell. But to avoid any future lawsuits, I mean, he put up the sign. He put up the notice? Yeah. Like, by the way, you might get attacked by a ghost in here. Um, I also hopped onto one of our favorites, hauntedhouses.org, and found a quick story there, too. Okay. A user named Jason posted in June of 2016, I was at this location with a small group of people in October of 2015. While going through the basement portion of the tour, I stopped into a small shop that was used to store equipment and furniture. When I stepped back out to rejoin the group, I looked back into the doorway of the room, and I saw a shadow figure peering around the corner at me. Oh, I hate that. The feeling in the air when I saw this was very heavy, very negative, and not welcoming at all. I I so dislike shadow creatures who like peek. Oh, me too. Like I think that's one thing that me and you mutually agree upon. Just I don't like it. So no matter what reason you choose to visit the bar, I think you'll get a kick out of the advertising line I found on their webpage. All right. Come for the ghosts and stay for the music. Get wilder and wilder Friday and Saturday nights with karaoke, hourly ghost tours, and nightly special guests and Bobby Mackey and the Big Mac Band at 10 p.m. That sounds like a good time to me. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Christine from And That's Why We Drink actually lives really close to Bobby Mackey's bar. Oh, nice. I don't, that's, I mean, she's obviously not going to give away all of her location, but I know that much. <laughs> Maybe we'll just like run into her. Ugh. The dream. <laughs> I wouldn't know what she looked like if if we did. You That'd be all on you. Okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, Bobby Mackey's Music World. On a skeptic scale of para to normal, para being five, normal being one, what are you going to give it? I have a really hard time with this because I really want it to be true, but a lot of the stories just for some reason just don't, they don't, they don't give me enough. I'm going to give it a 3.5. I'm going to give it a five. Okay. Okay. Not because of fucking ghost adventures. It's a portal to hell. So do you want to give your reasons for why you're hesitant, or do you want me to give my reasons for why I'm fully bought in? I, You know, I'm going to let you go first to see if you can sway me. Okay. So, first of all, documentation. That murder happened. Right. That is not a question. It was a slaughterhouse. That is not a question. Right. It was a mobster building. That is not a question. Okay. It was a shitty, shady, like, series of bars, including that bloody bucket where people were shot at. None of these are questions. (laughs) And then you have the article including stories with people that are willing to give their names. And there's a lawsuit. Somebody literally was so traumatized by the appearance of a ghost that they were like, I'm going to, like, incur legal fees. So that is why I am fully bought in because nobody spends money on that shit unless they're really that bought in. That's so that's why I give it a five. Okay. Okay. Uh, Honestly, I think I'm going to keep the 3.5. All right. I just I got a vibe. Got a vibe. Not coming for the ride. (laughs) Not my ride. Uh, Well, what do you got for me this week? All right, so I knew that you were going to go to Kentucky this week, uh, but that you were going to do a haunted location. Okay. So when I found this story, 
even though it is also Kentucky-based, I figured we were just keeping on with that theme train that we've been on the last couple of weeks because my Kentucky theme story is about- Kentucky fried chicken. Cursed object. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to tell me like the haunted story of like Colonel Sanders. It's so rarely that we hear this much about Kentucky. I just, just like I had to go to the next Kentucky-based thing in my head. And that was chicken? <laughs> chicken, yes. <laughs> All right, so tonight I'm going to tell you about the conjure chest. The, the like, okay, I have zero idea where, like, my brain, <laughs> like, a chest, like, a chest of drawers. Drawers, okay, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like a dresser. A dresser, okay. yes, yes, but it's called the conjure chest. Because it doesn't sound as fancy if you just say it's a dresser. Correct. Well, it's also from like the 1830s, and I believe they always refer to them as chests. Well, no, and so the reason I specify is because I have like what I call my treasure chest, which is like a gift from it's it's like a it's it's a chest like like a pirate chest, like that. But then I literally have a chest on the floor yeah. in the podcast studio. Or that that's also yeah. a chest. Yeah. But then there's a chest of drawers, which is a dresser. Yeah, I would normally consider a chest being like a. Uh, like a, a trunk of some yes, kind. Yes, trunk. That's the word I was looking yes, for. Yes, yes. Uh, treasure chest. Yes, exactly. That's normally what I... Yes. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> I'm going to have to cut so many of these yeses out. <laughs> All right. So our story starts in the 1830s, likely somewhere around Meade County, Kentucky, where a man named Jeremiah Graham was preparing for the birth of his firstborn child. Side note, in some of the stories, he's known as Jacob Cooley. This story had been published in a book called Flapdoodle, Trust and Obey from 1966. Flapdoodle. 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 Where the author changed the names of those involved. But Jeremiah Graham is the other name commonly associated with the conjure chest. And it's also the name that the Kentucky Historical Society credits. So I'm going to go with that one. All righty. So back to the story. So Jeremiah, being from Kentucky in the mid-1800s, was a man who enslaved people. Fuck him. Boo. And he had ordered one of these enslaved individuals named Remus to carve his baby-to-be a chest of drawers, which he did. Remus hand-carved a Empire-style mahogany veneer chest with four drawers and a cathis leaf design on the panels, and crystal knobs. I don't know what that type of design would be. Well, first of all, in my opinion, it's gorgeous. Second of all, you can see over here on this screen. Yes, I see. Is that like the the kind of like fancy flappy doodly stuff on the side there? Oh, okay, I see what you're talking Yep, yep, yep. Or yep. The, the leaf designs. Okay. All right, so... Gorgeous. This is beautiful. Hand-carved. I'd spend 10 bucks on it on a garage sale. So, Jeremiah, on the other hand, did not agree with me in thinking that it's gorgeous. Uh, He was an absolutely horrible human, and he hated it. And as punishment for not carving a chest of drawers by hand that was up to his standards, he beat Remus to death. (laughs) The other people enslaved by Jeremiah were disgusted by his cruelty, Legit. Uh, So to avenge the death of their friend, they sprinkled the dried blood of an owl in the drawers of the chest and put a curse on it. Okay. 
Despite apparently hating the chest enough to kill a man over it, Jeremiah did indeed put that chest in his baby's room anyway. He's like, it's like, it's, it's like the fucking terrifying, terrible version of, well, I'm not about to go back to Ikea to return this, so I guess I'm just going to use it. Yeah, but like the but like, really, really bad but like version. terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Within a few days of the child's birth, the child died. Then the chest was given to Jonathan, which is Jeremiah's twin brother, and Jonathan put the chest in his son's room. Not long after, his son was stabbed to death by his servant on his 21st birthday. I'm going to guess he deserved it. Given what his uncle was like, I'm going to go ahead and say say yeah. yeah. I'm going to say yeah. I agree. I agree. After which, Amanda Winchell Graham, wife of Moses Graham and sister-in-law to Jeremiah and Jonathan, moved the chest to the attic. Sometime after, Amanda's sister, Catherine, eloped with a recent immigrant from Ireland named John Ryan. Without much money and now newlyweds, Amanda arranged for her sister, Catherine, and her new husband, John, to live on a piece of land that the Grahams owned. And she also gave them the old chest from the attic for them both to use. Ooh. It sounds so nice, right? Like, here, let me get you all set up. Wait, so how long after all of this is it? Like, after the the start of this chest of drawers thing? I'm going to guess within, like, two years. Okay. Okay. So, with this new life on the farm, it didn't go very well for Catherine and John. They remained poor, and Catherine became ill. So, John decided to set out to find work elsewhere in order to support his family. But, on his way to New Orleans, he was struck in the head by a steamboat's gangplank and died. Shit. Some of the stories say that he abandoned his family, but again, we're going with what the historical society said. Legit. I'd go the same way. Not long after, Catherine's illness got the better of her, and she too passed away. After this, the story gets a little bit murky, mostly due to the name changes, so I did my best to put it together. How I could. (laughs) Um, So the best that I can figure is that Catherine and John Ryan had a daughter named Eliza. And Eliza grew up and married a man named John David Gregory. Together, they had a daughter named Louis, Lu- Louise Louise Gregory, who, after inheriting her grandpa's four-drawer chest, died around the age of 10 years old. Aww. But Louise wasn't Eliza and John's only child. Eliza! I've held it in for too long. I, just, I, <laughs> I didn't even it. think about it. I didn't even realize that this could be a Hamilton episode. <laughs> So Eliza and John also had a son named Ernest. A lot of great names in this story. (laughs) So Ernest grew up to meet and marry a woman named Stella Stonecipher. Stella also inherited the mahogany chest, which is where she put her wedding clothes. Stonecipher sounds like a character in a book I would read. Right? What a badass last name. Yeah. She seems like someone who could like read runes. I'm guessing by the fact that she put her wedding clothes in this chest of drawers, though, things aren't going to go well. No, the couple was married in 1895, and within two years, Stella also died. Woo! For those at home counting, we now have six deaths attributed. Six deaths, six deaths, six deaths. (laughs) Folks who use the conjure chest. Jeremiah's newborn child, Jeremiah's nephew, John Ryan, his wife Catherine, Catherine and John's granddaughter, Louise, and now their granddaughter-in-law. 
But alas, the story does not end here. And no, apparently no one ever put together the fact that anyone who uses the chess seems to inevitably die. It's just a dresser. I can't even, like, I can't claim that if I had been in their scenario, I would have, like, made the one big thing. Like, obviously it's this dresser. It's obviously this dresser. I think my brain would have been like, oh, man, maybe it's karma from our family being shitty for years. Yeah. And you know what? It also is karma because the <laughs> curse was put on them for being shitty. Yep, true. Very true. All right. So prior to Stella's passing in 1884, a friend of the Gregory family named Mabel Lewis Whitehead came to live with Eliza and John. Nearly a decade later, she met and married a man named Wilbur Harlan. They wed in 1897. Four years later, Mabel gave birth to her and Wilbur's first child, a little boy named Chester. Once again, the chest was gifted, and baby Chester's clothes were put inside of it. Within two weeks, Chester passed away as well. A lot of babies pass. See, that's where I keep getting, like, the 10-year-old, the baby. Like, I'm like, ugh. Yeah, they didn't even have of, a chance to, like, grow up and be better than their parents. No. Well... And I'm not saying that they would have been, but they might have been. They might have been. Years later, Wilbur himself began using the chest for his clothes, and then he died in 1905. Uh, John David Gregory, the owner of some five or so unfortunate folks back, he's the one who lost his 10-year-old daughter, Louise, and his daughter-in-law, Stella. Well, he had another daughter named Nellie. Nellie married a man named Fred Frage, in August of 1905, and she, too, put her wedding clothes in the chest. Don't do it. But Nellie lucked out. I mean, she might not have thought so, but she didn't die. Her husband left her, and that probably sucked. (laughs) But the curse wasn't quite as strong for Nellie as it was for everyone else. Then, three years after that, John David Gregory, after having lost a daughter and a daughter-in-law, and then his other daughter was left by her husband, well, he passed away in 1908 at which time his sister Lucy took possession of the chest. And in December of 1909, Lucy hid some knitted gloves and a scarf for her son Emmett's Christmas present. Oh, no. You guessed it. in In the death drawers. And apparently the conjure chest doesn't just take the lives of those who possess it and use it as their own. Just putting any clothes in the chest will cause the owner or future owner their life. Because Emmett, who worked for the railroad, died later that month after falling off of a train and plummeting 30 feet through a trestle. That's terrible. Also, death drawers. Gothic lingerie. Trademark Kayla now. (laughs) Death drawers. Death drawers. It's just like spooky booty covers. So we are now up to eight deaths. And one failed marriage. Eight deaths, eight deaths, eight deaths. Years later, Eliza Gregory, John David Gregory's wife, rearranged the house. Thought, you know what? I'm going to put those drawers in my room. Soon after, she unalived herself. And that happened on April 4th, 1915. (sighs) After Eliza's death, her granddaughter, Virginia Carey Hewson Cleveland. It's a very long name. Uh, moved the chest to her home in Louisville, Kentucky. She and her husband, Curtly Cleveland, were expecting their first child and thought her grandmother's four-drawer chest would be the 
perfect thing for their nursery. Spoiler alert, it was not. (laughs) Shortly after it arrived, she put her baby-to-be's clothes in the drawers and then went into premature labor. The baby was born too early and died the same day. That was on August 8th, 1915, just four months after the death of her great-grandmother. Okay, we are now well far along enough in this where, like, of the deaths and the lives and stuff. I don't know. Maybe these people are still shitty people. But now, like, the curse has gotten to the point where I no longer am like, yeah, well, they suck. And now I'm like, oh. Just one thing after another. You know, like, they could be terrible people, but what if they're not? And now they're just dying because they wanted a place to put their clothes. We're always looking for good storage opportunities. And I think at this point, it's actually broken off from the original family. Yeah. So Virginia and Curtly had two more children, both girls. Shortly after, the youngest girl, um, a girl named Anna, inherited the chest and began using it, she was struck with polio around 1929. And although she survived, she was cursed with the related symptoms for the rest of her life. Oh, man, and that shit... Sucks. Yeah, like the after effects of like even surviving polio. I think I've read in a few things where some people who have survived polio almost, depending on how severe their after effects wish were, that they almost hadn't. wish they hadn't. Yeah. yeah. Then Virginia and Curtley's oldest daughter, also named Virginia, like many before her, also used the chest for her wedding clothes when she married Wilbur Brister in 1943. So it just keeps moving. I like I keep waiting for the point where they cut it off and they're like. Man, it's just not that pretty, and people keep dying. It's it's kind of pretty. I mean, it's pretty, but is it worth, worth all the death? death? No, it's not. Nothing is worth the death. <laughs> Certainly not a chest of drawers. A year later, Wilbur was rushed to the hospital for an appendectomy. <laughs> appendectomy. <laughs> appendectomy. Yes. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, he ended up dying on December 9th, 1944, but it wasn't because of his appendix. It was actually because he was poisoned from ether. Wait, what? Yeah. Ether. Uh, what they used to put him down. Yeah. Oh, so like. He OD'd on it. Oh, shit. So it wasn't in his, it wasn't even well, I was death like, you by said appendix. poison from ether, and I'm like, well, was somebody, like, poisoning him up till this point? You're like, no, he went for surgery, and they were just like, too much. Too much, yeah. And that's how he died. Malpractice. Yeah. So Virginia and Curtly, in addition to their two daughters, also had a son named Richard. He, too, obtained possession of the chest, and within not even a week after placing his clothes in the drawers, he was stabbed through the hand at school. Dick was dead. Well, he lived, but he was stabbed through the hand (laughs) at school. Obviously, all of this misfortune was just a coincidence, clearly. Clearly. So eventually, Virginia and Curtly gifted the dresser to their neighbor, a man named Herbert Sonny Moore, and he used it to store his hunting clothes. Sonny Moore? Sonny was his nickname. So it's Herbert Sonny Moore. Oh, never mind. Never mind. You're not going to get my reference. Continue on. Thanks. (laughs) I probably wouldn't. Uh, But this was silly, okay, because not long after, Sonny was killed in a gun accident at the home of another neighbor on April 5th, 1946. 
Well, this was the last straw. This was. <laughs> this was the last straw. They're like, all right, something's up. Something is up. <laughs> There's one common denominator in this whole situation, and it seems like it might be this dresser. So Virginia decided that maybe it wasn't a coincidence after all, and she was going to figure out how to break this curse. She, thank goodness, had a maid named Sally who had worked for her nearly her entire life, and Sally knew just what to do. So Virginia needed a dead owl brought unasked by a friend, which somehow she How obtained. does that happen? I don't know. <laughs> Brittany, but somehow you have she never it. once brought me a dead owl in your life. And, and I, I have never will. brought you. I never will. Yeah. But are we saying that at some point I should start bringing you roadkill just in case you need it unasked? To and then break you can a be, curse? To break a curse. And then if you don't need it, you can be like, no thanks. No thanks. But Pass if, it on to But if you are ever Lara. like- <laughs> Lyra or Rena or yeah, like any of your other friends who might need to break a curse or just want roadkill. Um, I mean they like bones. That's true. So they could do stuff with it. But like, one day it may come where I bring you something, and then you're like, thanks. And then I know that you've been cursed. I and needed I that. Just needed, yep, yep. I needed that. I need. I couldn't ask you because it's unasked by a friend. Um, then she needed to take the leaves of a willow tree that had been planted by a friend. She could have asked her friend to plant it, though. It doesn't say that it's unasked. But still, the leaves, like a, a willow tree, takes a long-ass time to grow. It really does. It really does. Somehow this all worked out, though. Um, and the so she's had got the dead owl brought by an unasked friend. She has the leaves of a willow tree that had been planted by a friend, and then what she needed to do was boil them for one day within sight of the dead owl. Next, she was to put the liquid from the boiled willow tree leaves in a jug and bury it with a handle facing east under a flowering bush. We are immediately to the point where a spell is too complicated where I'm like, <laughs> I fuck it. This might just be cursed. It's fine. Fuck it. I'm good. And if it worked and if the curse was broken... Either Virginia or Sally would die before all of the leaves fell off of that bush in the fall. So either way, a human sacrifice was needed in order to, like, make this curse go away. Sally, sadly, <laughs> died that following September, which seems a little bit unfair. Sally was just the maid who was helping her out. Like, here, I can tell you how to get rid of this curse. One of us might die. Um, and then it ended up being her. Such bullshit. The whole thing is bullshit. So then in 1976, Virginia donated the chest to the Kentucky Historical Society for fear that giving it to another family would allow the curse to continue. To this day, owl feathers remain in the top drawer to keep the curse at bay. It remains with the Kentucky Historical Society as part of their Creepy Kentucky exhibit, along with the graveyard quilt, the cursed beads, and a hangman's noose. Well, shit. And that is the story of the conjure chest. Well, it's pretty. Not pretty enough to die for. No. No. They should have just gone to Ikea, really. On a skeptic scale. Yeah. I'm going to give it a three. A flat three. Okay. I'm going to give it a four. Okay. You're going to rate this higher than my story? All of that information was from the Historical Society website. 
Okay, but a .gov, Kayla. It's a .gov. You know how we you love do, the .gov. We do love a .gov. We love scholarly sources. .govs always count. You know, I love it. But. Okay, so this is what I would say as my, um, because you didn't get a chance to see the sources mm-hmm. that I saw. So if you noticed around the turn of the century, actual dates started to come into play because all of those are verifiable. Okay. The beginning parts as to what happened before we hit the 1900s, uh, those are, I don't think that they've been able to verify them. I tried really, really hard to find these names. But it's hard to at a certain point yeah. because documents weren't kept. Exactly. Yeah. So I will say. Especially when they're not families of prominence. Exactly. So I will say that pretty much everything after 1905 is documented and that's what the Historical Society presented. Okay, the reason I'm going to stick with my point three, though. Oh, fine. Or with my point three. You're not three. point three. With my three. It's not point three. It's not less than one. Absolutely <laughs> not. That would be terrible. No, the reason I'm going to stick with my three is because I believe in magic. Mm-hmm. Whether magic is the power of suggestion and intention or like a straight up curse or whatever. I'm not convinced this is a curse so much as karma. Mm -hmm. but like you said later on it passed to families outside of the main line of family like it passed through just so that makes me more inclined to believe it right so i guess i'm gonna ride the line in the middle here mostly i just think they should have like fucking gone to target (laughs) like it's cute but not that cute no. Not worth your life. It's not worth your life. No piece of furniture is worth your life. Tell that to Ryan and Katie. No, they just really like old furniture. I feel okay. like they'd look at that and they'd be like, yeah. And I'd yeah, be like, it's no. Worth it. No, guys, no. <laughs> it's two of our friends that are very into like like restoring retro furniture. And I'm like, I don't Mm-mm. know, man. Not worth it. Mm-mm. Not worth it. Mm-mm-mm. There's always That's always been one of my concerns. Because I do like the look of a lot of antique furniture, and it would definitely, I could fit it in my space, but I just, some some things, when you get them from estate sales, you just, you gotta, you gotta wonder. I went to a estate sale with Corey from Twin Ports Horse Society the other day. I want to go to them. Why didn't you take me? Because we were specifically looking for Twin Ports Horse Society decorations and prizes for our trivia nights. And so we went. We ran into Ryan and Katie, and we ran into Dizzo. Oh, yep. Dizzo loves them. Yep. And uh, didn't get, I didn't get anything there. Okay. Except for a classic board game, but not something that's cursed. Nope. It is an interactive uh, Star Wars board game. And by interactive, I mean you're on the Death Star in the board game. And at a certain point, you put the VHS in the VCR (gasps) and Darth Vader tells you how to move. I'm very excited about it. (laughs) Oh, my God. So we haven't played it yet. Haven't played it yet. But we have that. Otherwise, I was thinking as you were talking, I was thinking about estate sales. Mm -hmm. Things that could get accidentally passed. And then I was thinking about how many generally... How many families in the Midwest, it seems, are big fans of, like, keeping keeps? And I'm not saying that it doesn't happen everywhere. I know it happens everywhere. But in the Midwest, from families I've talked to, right, it seems more prominent because in, like, the South or in, like, in bigger cities, I guess, less about 
less regional, more, you know, cities versus towns. Mm-hmm. Everybody's confined to how much space they have. Well, we have a lot more space in these less confined cities. So people can have a house where their family can pass this down from this down from this down from this down. And how very lucky I am that I have so much shit in my house that was my great-great-grandma's or my great-grandma's or this or that. I have a plant that my great-grandma had that my grandma had that my mom had. I have... And it's still alive? Yeah. I have little trinkets. I have a million different things that just I keep in my house for sentimental value. Mm -hmm. And I'm very lucky that none of them are cursed. Same. I don't have a whole heck of a lot. I think my mom has a lot of the stuff still. Um, Just because I've been moving from house to house to house to house. Why would I carry large pieces of antique furniture with me? But um, I have a lot of jewelry. Old jewelry. All my stuff is tiny. Mm -hmm. And at one point my mom moved. And she was like, I'm sick of moving this. You're taking it or I'm throwing it away. Yes, my mom did that with like a lot of our childhood stuff. Yep. And then I was forced to carry it around with me from house to house. Well, now you're done. You got a house. You're good. I have a house. <laughs> I don't have a listener story for you this week. Okay. I know because we're trying to stockpile them. We're stockpiling them. If you have a listener story that you would like to submit, I would appreciate it. Brittany would, I would appreciate too. it. <laughs> yeah. We would love it. You can do so by emailing us directly, leftofskeptic at gmail.com. There are several of you out there that I've heard you say, I have a story. I just haven't sent it yet. Ugh, so many of you. Just do it. Like Nike episode. said, just do it. You can also visit our website, www.leftofskeptic.com, and click the Listener Stories tab at the top of the page. You can also click the link tree in our bio. You can choose to remain anonymous or include your name, whatever you'd prefer. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on TikTok. Instagram and Twitter at Left of Skeptic and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. Thank you for joining us for another week. Uh, try to stay warm out there, everybody. Ugh. It's wish, wish for no more snow. Christmas city, wonderful city. Oh, yeah, that's All this week. All dressed up in snow and mistletoe. It's coming up on Friday. Yep, I'm going to be there with Sarah and Mom and the twins. You want to come? I am in the parade. For uh, all your shit? Yep. All right, nice. All right, well, if you go to that, we'll see you there. Happy Spooky Wednesday, everybody. We love you. Happy Spooky Wednesday. We appreciate you. Okay, bye. Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me, Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye!